You may recognize the chapter that was read or the section of the chapter that was read is coming from Genesis chapter 15. I would like to read for you now the use that Paul makes of that quotation in Romans 4. Will you turn please to the fourth chapter of the book of Romans. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture, what does the Old Testament say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to a man who does not work but trusts God... Who justifies the ungodly, God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. I'm sure you've heard it said there's no such thing as a free lunch, but uh, I had one last week. Someone purchased my lunch. I didn't have to work for it. I didn't have to wash dishes. I didn't have to, uh, I wasn't even obligated to invite him out to lunch. It was, uh, it was a free gift. What we mean, of course, when we say that there's no such thing as a free lunch is that uh, somebody has to pay. I may get off scot-free, but somebody has to pick up the tab. Now, that's the way Paul looks at our salvation. He he says there is no such thing as a free lunch. We have incurred the, the indebtedness. We have eaten our lunch, so to speak. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a there's a debt that we owe. But our Lord picked up the tab, and he picked up the tip. We don't, have to, we don't have to pay for any of it. Righteousness is given to us freely, Paul says. We are justified freely as a gift through Christ. Now that Paul has been saying in chapter 3, and he will say that over and over and over in this book. Now, uh, the proper response to uh, uh, receiving a free lunch is to say thank you. And as waiters say, enjoy You dig in. And that's precisely what we do with reference to salvation. It is given to us as a gift. We dig in. We thank him for it. We say, thank you very much for paying for my sin. And we enter into it. We begin to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of it. Salvation by grace, freely given on the basis of faith, has always been God's way. There's never been a time in human history when he saved people like work, by works. There, there is this uh, uh, totally uh, wrong way of looking at the Old Testament in that the Old Testament is full of law and people in the Old Testament uh, were saved on the basis of keeping the law, but in the New Testament people are saved by faith. And I think sometimes even the terminology that we use for Old and New Testament is misleading. The word testament is the same word as the word for covenant, which is the word that's used for the law as well as for the 
covenant made with Abraham and the new covenant, which comes through Christ's, uh, Christ's death, his sacrifice. And sometimes because we call the first part of our Bible the Old Testament, we think that that's a book of law. It's all about the Old Covenant. And grace and truth came only in Christ, in the New Covenant. But that's not true. People have always, always been saved by faith. Now, Paul has to, uh, he has to establish that fact for some of his readers, particularly Jewish folks who would take exception to his statement in chapter 3, verse 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Now, their question would be, what does this do to the Old, uh, to the Old Testament? What does this do to the law? Paul anticipates that question in verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith, that is, this proclamation of faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, uh, unfortunately, Paul uses the word law in a lot of different ways. Sometimes he uses it just to, to refer to a principle of life. Other times he's thinking of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and its amplification in, in the uh, first five books of the Bible. Other times he uses law to refer to the whole, whole Old Testament. And I think that's what he has in mind here. His point is this. By preaching faith in Christ as a way of salvation, do we nullify the Old Testament? We say that was one way of working for our, working ourselves into God's heart. We, we keep the law, but when we come to the New Testament, we have something new. We can put away the Old Testament. We, we don't have to read it anymore because that's another way of salvation, Paul says. No, no, that's not true. We uphold the law. We uphold the Old Testament. Now, what he's going to do is take two examples from the Old Testament, examples of men who were justified by faith. He could have picked any number of people. But he picked these two because these are the most prominent people in the Old Testament. These are, were paragons in, in, in Jewish thinking. These were the biggies, we would, we would say, Abraham and David. A number of years ago, I was uh, coming back from Europe on my way to New York, and I happened to sit next to a young uh, Israeli woman who was living in a kibbutz up in Galilee, and it was, I was it was fascinating. I was asking her questions of what life was like on a kibbutz. She and her husband had lived there during the Syrian bombardment and a lot of things had happened to her. It lived a very exciting life. So we were chatting about that. It dawned on me after about an hour or so. I didn't even know her name. We'd just been talking, and her, her husband was sleeping on the other side. So I said, uh, uh, excuse me, I, I should have asked earlier, what's your name? She said, my name is McCall. And I chuckled, and I said, I suppose your husband's name is David. And she laughed right out loud because Michal was one of David's wives, King David's wives in the Old Testament. And she looked at me and she said, how do you know about Michal and David? Because Michal's not a very well-known character in the Old Testament. And I said, well, I've, I've read the Old Testament a number of times. I have a deep love for the Jewish people and their heritage. And, and that launched us into a conversation about about the, the uh, about Moses and about Abraham and about the promise and about the coming Messiah. And we just had a great time. We chatted all the way to, to New York about the, the coming Savior. But what struck me about the conversation is that she kept talking about Father Abraham. Father Abraham. And uh, I knew what she was talking about. Abraham was the father and the founder of the Jewish people. You know, we all have people back in history that we, uh, we go back to. Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, the father of our country and whatnot. And she was thinking that way, just of a historical character. She was a very secular thinking uh, 
Jew. She didn't, wasn't really thinking of Abraham in terms of the promise and the covenant and the coming seed. But for her, Abraham was the premier person in the Old Testament. Father Abraham, she said, our father Abraham. And uh, she felt the same way about David. We started talking about David. David was the premier prince, the, the king of Judah. Uh, the, the example of kingship. The, the man after God's own heart, as he's, as he's described. And we talked about Abraham and David. It struck me when I was reading through this passage this last week that, that in Paul's day, even in our day, it's these two examples in the Old Testament that, that Jews keep going back to, Abraham and David. Now, the question is, what about Abraham? What, what can we say about Abraham? He's called the friend of God. He was intimately acquainted with God. How did he get that way? That's the question. Was it through a lifetime of, of good works? Was it by being a good old boy? Was it by going to church and Sunday school every day and, and getting involved in, you know, in religious activities? What, what, what was it that made Abraham the friend of God? Well, uh, it's because God justifies the ungodly. Did, did you see that phrase in chapter 4, verse, verse 5? The man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, my translation has it, the ungodly. Did you ever think of Abraham as an ungodly man? You see, that's why Paul adduces this example. Because of all the people in the Old Testament, Abraham was perhaps less godly than, than many of the others. Now, if you want an example, look at his marriage. He was a terrible example of a husband. Much worse than we even believe. I, I commented on that in my column yesterday. Uh, he, he and Sarah contrived this lie. When, when they first got married... They decided, Abraham decided, actually, he told her what he wanted her to do. Wherever we go, he said, you tell people that you're my sister. Now, there's a reason for that. They were going to a country where there was no law and order, and Abraham was afraid that someone would covet his wife and would kill him because, Abraham, uh, because Sarah, I don't know what Abraham looked like, but Sarah was a beautiful woman. The text says so. As a matter of fact, when she was 90 years of age, she was still turning heads. And, and, you know, Abraham and Sarah would walk down the street and men would stop and turn around and look at her. And Abraham thought, oh, oh I'm in trouble. So they worked out this, uh, this little deceit. And, and people would say, oh, who's this lovely lady? Is this your wife? Wife? Oh, that's my little sister. And what he did on, on at least two occasions that we know about was jeopardize Sarah's life to save his worthless hide. He put her life in jeopardy, and he almost threw away the promise on one occasion. At a time when Sarah was about to conceive, God had opened her womb. It was just a matter of days or weeks before the promised seed was conceived. Abraham almost gave it all away because he lied. He said, it's my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Philistia, took her into his harem. And were it not for the grace of God, she might have gotten pregnant through that king, and that would have, that would have, God would have, I don't know what God would have done. Because God had promised that through Abraham and Sarah, the seed would come, you see. So, was Abraham a godly man? No, no, he wasn't. He was a, he was a very ungodly man. 
God justifies ungodly men and women on the basis of faith. That's the point that Paul's making. What made Abraham the friend of God was not his good behavior. It's not that he was squeaky clean. It's that he believed what God told him. What did God tell him? He told him an incredible thing. Abraham was living on top of Mount Moriah, and you know how clear the, the stars are from, from a mountaintop, and there was no smog, and there, there was no haze, and there was no inversion in those days. And, and he, he took him on top of this mountain, and he looked up, and he saw millions of stars. And God said, can you count them? Abraham said, no. God said, you're going to have more children than, than stars that you can count. You know how many children he had at that point in his life? None. And he was impotent. His body was dead, Scripture says. And Sarah had already passed through the change of life. But Abraham trusted God. He knew that he was able to bring something out of nothing, as Paul will go on and tell us in the later part of this of this chapter, if he created the world out of nothing, he can create uh, a child out of nothing. He staggered not at the promise of God, but was strong in faith, Hebrews says. God said, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham was conversant with the facts. He looked at his body. He knew he was as good as he was 75 years old when the promise was, was given. He was 100 before the child was conceived. He faced the facts fair, squarely. But he had confidence in God. Do you know what he said? He protects us. He looked up and he said, Amen. I believe it. I don't know how you're going to do it. But I believe it. And God said, You're a righteous man. Now that sounds strange to us. Because we, you know, we, we think you have to do something. You have to clean your act up a little bit. But what Paul is trying to get across to us is that in the Old Testament, before there was even a law to obey. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous, righteousness. He was counted righteous on the basis of works? No, faith. How were people saved in the Old Testament? Faith. <laughs> By faith. That's the point that's Paul, that, that Paul is trying to make. Now, the second illustration that he uses is that of, of David. What, what can we say about David? Surely here's a good man. Michelangelo's... Uh, Inspiration, Judas Prince, uh, singer, author, poet, uh, politician, king, brilliant man, gifted in many areas, man after God's own heart, Scripture says so. How did David get to be the friend of God? Through a lifetime of good works? No, and, and, and the interesting thing is the passage which he quotes, it comes from Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 was written right after David committed adultery and murder. Do you know the story? One spring, when kings were supposed to go off to war, David decided he didn't want to fight. He was tired of fighting. So he stayed home, sent off his army to fight, crossed the Jordan River, began to wander around the, on the roof of his house, you know, they had flat roofs, so there wasn't any problem doing that in those days. And he was wandering around the roof. He looked down into the courtyard next to him, and he saw his neighbor taking a bath, Bathsheba, appropriately named. <laughs> Beautiful young lady. 
asked to find out who she was, found out she was Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of his best friends. Isn't that interesting? Uriah was one of the mighty men that came to David when he was in exile, when he was fleeing from Saul, when his life was in jeopardy. A number of men left their secure positions in Saul's army, and they, and they formed around David to protect him because they believed in David. Uriah was one of them. And this was his pretty little wife, Bathsheba. So they, they had a nice, quiet affair. Nobody knew about it, except she got pregnant. They thought they were going to sweep the whole thing under the rug. No one would know. But she got pregnant. And anyone can count up to nine. And her husband was off fighting a war. And David knew he was in big trouble. And so he put out a contract on Uriah's life. He told his commander-in-chief to kill Uriah, to put him in a place in the, in the battle where he, he, he knew he would be killed. And that's what happened. Uriah was killed. And David thought he was home free. So he married this young woman, and he, he covered the whole thing up, and nobody knew except God. God knew. And uh, uh, a little later, Nathan the prophet walked into David's chamber, and he said, uh, David... Uh, Heard a story. I thought I'd tell you about this. You're a just man. This man in your kingdom has a he's a poverty-stricken man. Had, had one little sheep, his little lamb, pet lamb. His neighbor up the road, very wealthy, had huge herds. And uh, the, the wealthy man took the poor man's little lamb and he killed it and used it to feed some of his guests. What, what, what do you think about that? David just outraged, jumped up from his throne. That man deserves to die, he said, which was a little bit of overkill. Sheep napping wasn't a capital offense in Israel in those days. But, you know, this is David's guilt speaking. I think even at this point, he, he saw through Nathan's story. He realized what was going on. He said that you know, the man deserves to die. Nathan put his finger under his nose and said, David, you're the man. And, and David put his face in his hands and he began to weep. And he confessed his sin and he went back to his, to his house and he, and he wrote this psalm at some point. We don't know when he wrote it, but it was shortly after he was convicted of murder and adultery. And he says, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And, then, and you know, he's talking generally, now he particularizes it. Blessed is the man, talking about himself, whose sin the Lord will never, never count against him. It's bad English to use a double negative. We don't never say don't, don't never. That, that's bad English, but it's perfectly good, good Greek. And, and that's the form that Paul uses here. When he translates from the Hebrew Old Testament into the New Testament, he puts it in Greek. He says, blessed is the man who sins the Lord will not, never count against him. In other words, he will never, ever, by any means, whatever, count his sin against him. And David got off. Well, he paid the consequences. You know, there, there was a lot of pain, a lot of heartache in his life because of those actions. But, but he was justified freely by grace because he deserved it, because he was a godly man. Absolutely not. 
God justifies the ungodly. Don't you see? It's just a question of degree. We're all ungodly. Maybe you've never committed adultery or murder, but just a question of degree. We're all ungodly. We, we all stand at the foot of the cross as sinners. But our Lord justifies us freely on the basis of faith. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never, ever count against him. Another ungodly man, St. Augustine, knew the significance of those words. He had them engraved across the foot of his bed. If you know anything of his life, you understand why he would put something like that at the foot of his bed. Profligate young man with no use for God. Finally, in desperation, he cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And his, his sins were, were forgiven. There's a word that's used in here over and over again. I'm sure you noticed it as we read it. It, it occurs four or five times in the paragraph that I read. also occurs in the next paragraph from 9 through 12 and, and on into the rest of the chapter. It's this word credited or count. It's the same word that's translated count in my, my version in verse 8. Whose sins the Lord will never count against him. Uh, some translations have reckoned. It's a word that Greek philosophers used to refer to non-emotional thinking. As a matter of fact, our word logical comes from, the, from this word. As, as in mind, total, complete objectivity. It's also a word that was used in mathematics and specifically in, in accounting. Uh, because there's probably nothing more objective and non-emotional than mathematics. Numbers don't lie, as we say. And accounting procedures are very objective. You don't know how your bank feels when they send out the statement. It doesn't matter how they feel. They just make a statement. It's totally objective. That's the term it's used. Now, I want you to imagine, if you will, a computer in heaven, a kind of celestial computer. Because almost all accounting procedures now are done by computer, and it makes it even more objective. And over, the screen opens up, and and you see your name at the top of the screen. This is your ledger. And every rotten, wretched thing that you and I have done is 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 listed there. All the lies that we've told, the adulteries that we've done or thought, the murder murderous thoughts that we've had. You know, even though we've never taken a life. You know, the, the abortion, the whole thing, the pride, the arrogance, the, the defensiveness, the unwilling to, to let people talk to us about our sin and selfishness, the, all the things that we've ever done. You know, they're just all lined up there. And we want somebody to close that screen up, but it's just there for everybody to see. Now, over here, another screen opens up on the computer, and, and this is Jesus' ledger. And there, itemized all his righteousness... He was without sin. He knew no sin. In him is no sin. You could look through his entire life and never find one instance when he was anything less than an exhibition of the grace and the glory and the character of God. He never sinned once. (laughs) That's hard to believe. It's true. And that's on his ledger. And all of our unrighteousness is on ours. But you see, what God does... And he does this on the basis of our faith. It's a totally rational, objective thing that he does. He takes all that unrighteousness out of our account. 
And he credits it to Jesus' account. That's what Paul means when he says he made him sin to be sin for us who knew no sin. And then he takes all of Jesus' righteousness out of his account and he credits it to ours. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. See, that's what Paul means when he says we are justified freely by faith in Christ. When we believe in Christ, all of Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited, reckoned to our account. And all of our awfulness, our wickedness, is taken out of our account and credited to him. That refers not only to the past, but to the present and the future. So that means that any sin that, that you, you sin in the future, if your confidence and trust is in Jesus, is not credited to your account, it's credited to his. Now, do you understand that? That's what Paul means when he says we are justified freely by grace. Now, uh, Paul goes on in verses 9 uh, through the rest of the, uh, of the paragraph, verse uh, 9 through 12, because he wants to establish that this salvation that Abraham found in the Old Testament is available to us today. And he argues in a, in a very interesting way. He actually argues that Abraham wasn't a Jew when he became a believer. Now, uh, let me read it, verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, that is, for the Jew? Or also for the uncircumcised. You have, to, you have to know what circumcision means to a Jew. It's a hallmark of the Jewish people. It's more than a surgical procedure. It's a religious ritual. That's what denotes them as Jews. In, in many Jews' minds, that's, that's how you become a Jew. If you're a Gentile and you proselytize, this is the way it's done. That's the sign that you're, in the, you're part of the covenant people. So when Paul says, is this blessedness only for the circumcised? It's using circumcision by metonymy for the Jew. Is this blessedness only for the Jew or also for the Gentile, for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abram's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, and here's the bottom line, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now what he's saying is this. Abraham was declared righteous before he was ever a Jew. There weren't any Jews in the world back then. There was just Abraham and a, and a bunch of other Gentiles. When God revealed himself to Abraham and when he, he gave him that promise, Abraham believed him. And it was 14 years later that he was circumcised. What Paul is saying is that that right did not confer righteousness on Abraham. It confirmed the righteousness that he presently has. So what he's saying is that everybody can get in on it. It, you know, you don't, it doesn't make any difference whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't make any difference how religious you are. It doesn't make any difference if you've been confirmed or baptized or if you've been active in a church or you've been on the board of a church or you've... You're meticulous about your moral life. That's not the issue. 
Those things may be confirmations of a relationship with God, but they don't make the relationship. What makes the relationship is faith, pure and simple. Nothing else can relate you to God. That's why Paul can say that we are justified freely by faith, you see. All we do is believe. Now, the question that comes to mind at this point, since the bottom line is faith, he says that clearly in verse 12, what matters is not whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised, but whether we walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. That's, that's the point. Are we following Abraham in our faith? What kind of faith did he have? Well, uh, Abraham didn't have a lot of faith, frankly. Uh, Hebrews says that uh, at least in one instance in his life, he was strong in, in faith, that he believed the promises. But you read through Abraham's life and his faith flickered back and forth. Sometimes he was strong, sometimes it was very weak. Sounds very much like, like us. It's not the measure of faith that matters, you see. It's the object of faith. What mattered is that Abraham believed God. You remember that song? I've heard people sing it, and they get all misty-eyed when they, when they sing it. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe. I believe. I believe in what? See, all that is is faith in faith. That's all. It's just psyching yourself up to believe something. That's hard to do. That's impossible to do. And faith is not trying to convince yourself that certain things that, that seem utterly absurd are true. That's not faith either. What, see, it's not the end that matters. God is good. That's the point. God's going to come through. And even if our faith is weak, he is faithful. A number of years ago, I, uh, uh, when I was in seminary, it was about 100 years ago, uh, I had a professor tell a story about his father and grandfather. They had a farm right alongside the Susquehanna River. And one, one time they were, uh, uh, they were going to deliver something to a store or go get supplies, and the river was frozen. It was dead of winter. Had to cross on the ice. And uh, uh, then my professor's father first got on the ice. He started to cross on his horse, and the ice began to crack and creak. And so he got off his horse and, and began to walk. And then after a while, as the ice sagged, he was down on his hands and knees, kind of feeling his way across and he didn't think he was going to make it, and he heard his clatter behind him and rattle of harness, and he looked back, and here came his father, who was my professor's grandfather, driving a horse, uh, driving a team, rather, hitched to a wagon, down the hill, and he lashed the horses, and they raced across the ice up the other side, and my professor used that as an illustration of faith. He said, faith has to be audacious. Faith has to be courageous. I thought, boy, that's a great illustration, and I've used it a lot of times since then. But the more I think about that, uh, that illustration, the more I realize that it's totally misleading. Because, the, you know, the issue is not how strongly I can believe. The issue is the faithfulness of God. See, what I want you to understand is that as far as God is concerned, the ice goes all the way to the bottom. And you may be down on your hands and knees crawling your way across, or you may be whipping a team of horses and driving them across. It doesn't make any difference. The ice goes all the way to the bottom. See? Now, that's what real faith is. That's what authentic faith is. 
My faith may be weak. It may even fail. But my safety and my salvation is never in question because the ice goes all the way to the bottom. Remember a couple of years ago, when a fellow drove his cat out on the ice at, at McCall. He was going to groom the ice for the snowmobile races, and, and someone told him it was okay because the ice would hold up a locomotive, and he got in the middle of the lake, and, and the thing cracked. And as far as I know, that caterpillar is still in the bottom of the lake. I mean, he, he leaped about 50 feet off of that caterpillar and saved it himself, but he lost the cat. And all the confidence in the world in that ice wouldn't have held it up. Or the confidence in his ability, rather, to, to, to drive across that ice, you know, it wouldn't have helped because the ice was weak. Now, what, what, what does God do with ungodly people? I want to go back to the question I raised in the, in the title because that's a good one. What does God do with the ungodly? Like you and like me, those that can't quite get it together, those that can't believe very strongly, those that struggle, those that fail, that have a hard time, that lose our tempers. That, what, what, how does God look at us? Well, I want you to understand, on the authority of Paul's words, that the man who does not work, that is, he doesn't rely on his activity, his own good works, but he trusts God who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the men to come forward now to serve at the Lord's table as we pray. And I, it just seems to me that the place to begin is to say thank you again, to thank him for what he's provided, for what, for what salvation cost him. So we gather around this table, it's a reminder of, of the of the terrible, awful cost to our Lord. He gave up his life for us. The only proper response, the only appropriate response is to say thank you, thank you so much. Now, if you're laden this morning with a sense of guilt, you're burdened by your own failure this past year or this past week or this morning, you need to remind yourself that God does not count your transgression against you. Every day, every hour, every moment is a new beginning. We walk in a forgiven state. We have it on the authority of God's word that he never, ever counts our sins against us. Our Lord bore our sins in his body on the cross. There's nothing more that can be done to take them away. Lord, we want to worship you this morning in our, in our hearts. We want to express again to you our, our devotion, our love, because you've done this for us. On the basis of your mercy, Lord, we want to offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice to you. We, we can do nothing else. There's no other rational, reasonable response to what you've done than to receive your gift and to, to walk in the enjoyment of it. Lord, we thank you that we're your friends, not because we're godly, but because you justify the ungodly. Help us to realize that. In these moments when we're tempted to doubt your word, when Satan casts a spell over us and makes us want to, to disbelieve what the God who loves us has told us, 
Bring to our mind the truth and help us to believe it. We're justified freely by your grace. Thank you. Thank you so much.